Psalm number 64. Moving along like a steam engine. You know, if you ever had the privilege of studying world history, you'll find that there are many examples of quick, sudden military attacks which resulted in great victories for the armies which launched these surprise offensives. In the year 410 A.D., Alaric I and the Visigoths rushed through the city gate of Rome unexpectedly. The three-day siege was the first time in centuries that Rome had been sacked and invaded, says Dermon. And it was a massive political and psychological blow. Non-Christian Romans blamed the sacking on the abandonment of the traditional Roman gods. The ultimate surprise there, as Johns Hopkins University military historian Mary Habeck says, quote, was that Rome fell, not that the city was attacked. The great general, the great French revolutionary military commander, Napoleon Bonaparte, said, quote, a general-in-chief should ask himself several times in the day, what if the enemy were to appear now in my front or on my right or on my left, end quote. In the year 1967 was the Six-Day War. On the morning of June 5th, Israeli planes surprise attacked at the at-rest Egyptian Air Force destroying hundreds of planes. Similar strikes hobbled Jordan and Syria. On the ground, Israeli troops marched into the Sinai Peninsula and the Gaza Strip. They routed Palestinians from the west bank of the Jordan River, seized the Golan Heights in Syria, and continued on to the Suez Canal. The rapid chain of events altered the landscape and the future of the Middle East and arguably foreign policy in state departments around the world. Blitzkrieg, which in German means lightning war. Blitzkrieg is a term used to describe a method of offensive warfare designed to strike a swift focus blow at an enemy using mobile maneuverable forces including armored tanks and air support. Such an attack ideally leads to a quick victory, limiting the loss of soldiers and artillery. Most famously, Blitzkrieg describes the successful tactics used by Nazi Germany in the early years of World War II as German forces swept through Poland, Norway, Belgium, Holland, and France with astonishing speed and force. And these kinds of sudden, surprise, unexpected attacks of the enemy is exactly what King David has in mind in the 64th Psalm. The key word in Psalm 64 is the word suddenly. Notice that it appears no less than two times in Psalm 64. The first time is found in Psalm 64 and verse 4 when David speaks of his enemies as shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly 
and without fear. Again, Psalm 64, verse 4. This speaks of the attacks of wicked and evil people against the people of God, the Jewish people, the Israelite people in the Old Testament. But the second mention, notice with me in verse 7 of Psalm 64. The Bible says, but God shoots his arrow at them. They are wounded suddenly. And here is the idea, is that just as the enemies, our enemies, shoot arrows at us, God suddenly shoots an arrow at them. And this is striking. This is a feature of poetry. We're going to talk about this this morning. And the idea, first being the wicked shooting arrows at God's people, but then God shooting an arrow at ju of judgment at those same wicked ones. What does this mean? Well, this strikes a note of poetic justice. Poetic justice. And this strong note of poetic justice is developed throughout the 10 verses of Psalm number 64. If you want to understand the message of the 64th Psalm, it's best that you understand that message in terms of the two key words used twice over. Suddenly the wicked shoot arrows at the innocent, but then suddenly God shoots his arrow of judgment back at those wicked ones. The wicked are destroyed by the weapons which they have forged against God's people. Whatever weapon the wicked and the evil forge against God's people, that same weapon will be turned back and shot back at the wicked that seek to persecute and destroy God's own people. We're going to talk about this. And uh, this is not the first time that we've seen this in the book of Psalms, but we're going to sort of unpack this a little bit more as we move throughout this 10-verse great piece of Scripture that we have before us. Now, here's the significant thing about Psalm 64 that you need to be made aware of, is that in 10 short verses, the majority, the bulk of Psalm 64 is written about the enemies of David and Israel. David has mentioned his enemies before. Almost, I would say on average, every other psalm mentions them or alludes to them. If not every psalm says something about them. You remember, even in the great 23rd psalm, the psalm of the shepherd of the Lord, the very last verse says that God prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Now, Every psalm and most of the psalms have something to say about David's enemies, but this one in particular devotes an, a peculiar amount of time. The majority of the verses are written about David's enemies, and that's what makes this one so unique, is that the bulk of the material in the, ten, in the 64th psalm, 10 short verses, is written about the enemies of God and David. As we find ourselves under sudden unexpected attack by our great enemies, may we take a lesson from King David as to how we can respond in a way which honors and glorifies our God. I have three simple points this morning. Number one, verse one, is the psalmist's case, C-A-S-E, the psalmist's case. Roman number number two, 
the threats of the wicked, verses 2 through 6. And Roman numeral number 3, God's sudden intervention, verses 7 and 8. So that is the psalmist case, the threats of the wicked, and God's sudden intervention. Got it? All right. Amen. <laughs> We're going to move forward. I want to draw your attention to the opening verse. Notice what David says. He says, hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Normally, in our modern thinking, when we think of someone in the English language that is giving a complaint, it's generally negative. If you ever have worked in retail or in customer service, uh, one of the unfortunate phone calls or one of the unfortunate customers sometimes that you have to deal with are those complaining customers. And they're not happy with the service. They're not happy with something that happened. They want their money back or they want a partial refund or they just want to get what's bothering them off their chest and they want to tell you all about it because they had a bad day. But the complaint that David is wagering, this word complaint is very specific. And this is a courtroom term. It's not so much a complaint as it is a plea that you would make in the presence of a judge. So David is arguing his case. David is presenting his case to the judge. David is the defendant and the judge is God. And David is saying that the plaintiff, or you could even say David is the plaintiff, and his, his complaint is that he is seeking redress. He is seeking for this situation for someone to step in and take care of what's happening to him. This is courtroom language. David is arguing his case before the great throne of God. And God, um, sometimes it's good for us to think of God as one who wears the flowing robes of a judge and who carries the great gavel of all eternity. And that God is the righteous judge of all the earth. And that when we approach God, that we are approaching a great and powerful judge that has the ability to take up and hear our case. And what's interesting is that when David experiences these sudden, unexpected attacks of his great enemies that come on without warning... What David does is just as suddenly, just as quickly, and just as surprisingly as the enemies attack David, David turns immediately to God. Now, there's a lesson in this. Because generally, when we face great enemy attacks, one of the things we try to start doing is defending ourselves. One of the things we want to do is when we have fiery darts, as we're going to see in just a moment, being shot at us, what we want to start doing is shooting back. You have to be very careful with doing that. I want you to notice with me the words of Paul the Apostle in Ephesians 6 and verse 16. He said, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And here is the idea. 
the devil, Satan, the powers of darkness, they are our great enemy. And our great enemy is, has a quiver full of arrows and he has a very, very accurate bow and he puts fiery darts in his bow and he shoots them at the people of God. And Paul says that we must have the shield of faith which in all circumstances is able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now this is an important thing because you may think, well, you know, I don't really have any enemies waiting and lying in covert with the camouflage on waiting to shoot fiery flaming darts at me. But I beg to differ because in this great portion, Ephesians 6, he said in all circumstances, in all circumstances of life, here are several examples where our enemies suddenly and surprisingly shoot flaming darts at us as the people of God. And let me give a disclaimer. If you have a coworker or a friend or a family member that begins to verbally attack you, that may not be Satan actually attacking you. That's that person attacking you. But what the devil, our adversary, what the accuser does is he takes those evil words, those unkind words, and he then uses them to try to discourage us. Does that make sense? Not all phone calls that say that a sudden illness has taken one of your loved ones not every event of bad news which comes to you is of Satan. What Satan does, however, is he uses bad news. He uses sudden illness, sudden death. He uses unkind words spoken against us, words of accusation. And he shoots flaming darts into our conscience, into our psyche to get us to start thinking about what has been said to us. And psychologically, the enemy attacks us. And so it's important that you understand that in your life, when you have someone that is wagering unkind words to you, words of wrong criticism, words of accusation, the enemy is standing right behind them using those words as fiery flaming darts shooting them into your mind, getting you to have dark thoughts, getting you to be discouraged, getting you to focus on what's been said. And what happens is we begin to mull it over, over and over again in our heads. And the enemy is very, very keen. He's very wise. He knows how to trip us up. He knows how to negatively affect every one of us. And while it may not be the devil actually shooting the arrows of fiery arrows at you he is certainly using and he's shooting fiery arrows and getting you to think negative thoughts bad thoughts dark thoughts condemning thoughts discouraging thoughts and this is what he does the enemy shoots sudden arrows of unkind words he shoots sudden arrows of bad news he shoots sudden arrows of sickness 
probably no greater time, and I'm sure the Raidersdorf family can testify to this, of Satan's fiery darts that fly at you in moments of crisis. Am I right? Try to get you to doubt God's word. Try to get you to doubt God's goodness. Try to discourage you from following the Lord. And this is what the enemy does, is he uses the circumstances of life as fiery darts to lead us astray, to get us to be bitter and angry and hateful and resentful. This is a great tactic. Fiery arrows that the enemy shoots, sudden arrows without expectation. The quarrel, quarreling with our spouses. I know that you may not know anything about that in here this morning. Quarreling with the spouse. But I certainly do. And I know that you probably do too. And the enemy uses this against spouse, husbands and wives, to drive wedges in marriages. Be careful with this. Remember, we are not to retaliate. Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the great weapon that we have. It's the word of God. The worst thing that we could do is respond to the attacks as the attacks have been waged against us. They make accusations against you. You make accusations against them. They respond with unkind words to you. You respond back with more unkind words. And before you know it, you've got a great war raging and people shooting fiery darts back at each other. Causes a tremendous amount of damage in relationships. Homes are destroyed because of fiery darts that have been wagered and shot at one another. We must be very careful to guard ourselves with the shield of faith that can extinguish these fiery darts of our great enemy. And quote Dr. Boyce, he says, quote, In this psalm, David's enemies are not attacking him openly and directly, but rather behind his back by malicious words. There is no adequate defense against that. So David does the only wise and effective thing, and that is to bring his complaint to God, end quote. We experience sometimes sudden onslaughts of attacks that are waged at us directly, but sometimes the enemy comes up the flank, doesn't he? And those are some of the most painful wounds because when the enemy comes and he flanks you from behind at your six, that's when he catches you unexpectedly. Now, we know that we believe that David was king in Psalm 64 already. And the attacks that come from behind are the ones that you least expect. The attacks that come from those closest to you are the ones that hurt the most. Perhaps no other attack hurts us more than when the fiery darts are shot from someone close to us whom we trust. But I also want you to notice the threats of the wicked. I don't have time to unpack all this. You just need to be aware that this is here. The wicked, this section, verses 2 through 6, 
show us no less than five things about the wicked ones. It shows us their nature, their weapons, their methods, their plans, and their pride. It's all right there, one verse after the other. I want to talk to you a little bit about the nature of the wicked ones. Notice with me, what is this? In verse 2, hide me from the secret plots of the wicked. Think about that you have great conspirators in the heavenly realms. Great, powerful, cosmic forces of darkness that you can't see, feel, or touch. These are the powers that rule the world in which we live. The prince of the power of the air. And these conspirators dwell behind the curtain where nobody can see them. And they're plotting against the people of God secretly. They're very wise. They're very crafty at what they do. They set traps for us. David had those of his own household that were conspiring against him. Those who were of his closest confidants that conspired against him. Close family, close friends. The most dangerous snakes are the ones coiled up in the bush unseen, unexpected, and they strike without warning and without notice. The poison from one of these deadly bites, from these serpents that dwell closest to us, the poison from those bites has the potential to destroy us and our service for God. But David's conspirators cannot destroy him because immediately, just as suddenly as he is attacked, with the same suddenness, he turns to God. His first response is to go to God. To bring and argue his case before the throne of God. Is God a first response for us or is he a last resource? That's the question. David's enemies are not able to poison him and remove him and destroy him because David's faith is in God alone. When the enemy is lying covertly, think of the snipers, you know, that uh, when they move, you know, they show up, show a shot of uh, some brush, some undergrowth, and it looks normal. Looks like normal brush and undergrowth. And then all of a sudden, there's a sort of a, a blanket that had grass and all sorts of other uh, camouflage on it. And you see the sniper dwelling there unseen. That's what our enemies are like. They're covert. They're secret. They dwell in the heavenly realm. You can't see them, but they are there. And they're using all of the cares and affairs and circumstances of life to Quit shoot fiery darts at us. Notice their weapons in verse 3. He said, Who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows. Somebody said, Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. They never read Psalm 64. Because wars have been fought, 
Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people have been killed. Marriages have been destroyed. Families have been broken up. Churches have been split. Why? Because of words. Words have the power to build. Words have the power to destroy. Listen to what James says. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James chapter 3 verses 5 through 8. Our words do mean things. Our words have the power to give life, and our words have the power to bring death. We must guard our words. Consequently, running congruent with how powerful words are, guess what the Holy Spirit of God uses? He uses the Word. But He uses the Word of God. The enemy uses words, but God also uses words. The enemy uses words to rip away, to tear down, to destroy. God uses words to build up, to edify, and to give life. We are called upon by God to fight with our spiritual weapons, weapons not of this world, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I have purposed and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The power of God's word. Now, here it is. Just as the enemy uses words, God uses words. If we don't know the Bible, if we're not in God's word, and if God's word is not touching our hearts and changing us, then what we're doing is we're robbing the Holy Spirit of the tools and the weapons that he needs to make us soldiers of the cross. If we're not in the Bible, if we don't know the Bible, then we have no weapons. And how many warriors can stand on the battlefield without weapons? You only have one weapon out of the whole armor of God. The shield, the breastplate, the shoes. You have one offensive weapon and that is God's word. If you don't know the Bible, if you're not giving the Spirit of God the weapons that He needs to defend you and to take back ground that the enemy tries to take from you, then what do you have? You have nothing. This is the importance of the Bible.
How can we fight the good fight of faith, as Paul tells Timothy, if we do not know the Scriptures? If we do not know the Scriptures, then the Spirit of God has nothing to work with in the day of the enemy's concentrated attacks against us. This is significant. This is why knowing God's Word is vital. Because if you don't know God's Word, you'll be left on the battlefield with no weapon to defend yourself, and you will be mowed down like a blade of grass. Your enemies are infinitely greater than you are. And if we're not giving God, who is infinitely greater than our enemies, the tools and the weapons that he needs to defend us and take back the ground that the enemy tries to take from us, then what hope do we have? Their methods suddenly, notice that they shoot at the innocent in verse 4, shooting from ambush at the blameless Shooting at him suddenly and without fear. This innocent, blameless person pictures someone who has their guard down. Why do they have their guard down? Because they're law-abiding citizens. They're living, they're trying to live right. They're trying to do right. Their conscience is clear. People who are thugs, people who are criminals... They've always got their guard up because they're waiting to be attacked by someone. They know that they always have to have eyes in the back of their head waiting for another wicked person to come and do wickedness to them because they are wicked. Trust me, I know. That's no way to live. But then what happens if we are living as God has called us to live? And we are seeking to be what God has called us to be. What happens is we think it's all good in the neighborhood. And I'm here to tell you that it's not all good in the neighborhood. And if you are living for God and you are trying to do the right thing and you are trying to walk by faith and you are trying to trust the scripture, that is when the enemy sets his sights on you the most. Why? Because you are an effective tool in the hands of God. God can use you if you're trying to live for Him. And so you've got a big X on your back, a big bullseye. Who's the only one who can protect your flank? Who's the only one who truly has got your back? David knows who it is. It's God. Why? Because God's justice is poetic justice. Here they go and they put a round in the chamber and the bullet goes off in their hand and destroys them before they can destroy you. This is the poetic justice. They've set a trap for you and what happens is they walk into the trap that they've set. This conjures ideas 
of something. I want to read you this. It's hard to read about the sudden destruction of the wicked without thinking of the story of Haman and Mordecai in the book of Esther. Mordecai was a Jew who worked in the court of Xerxes, the king of Persia. Haman was a high official. Most people defer to Haman, bowing to him almost as if he were the king. Mordecai would not do this. Therefore, Haman hated him for the perceived affront and plotted to get him killed. Haman did this by a peculiarly nasty bit of anti-Semitism, telling the king that there was a race of people in the kingdom who did not obey the king's laws and were subversive. He got the king to approve a secret, sudden uprising against the Jews, while he himself prepared a gallows on which he planned to hang his great enemy, Mordecai. Mordecai had a niece whose name was Esther. Her Jewish ancestry was not known, and she had been taken into the palace where she had won Xerxes' favor and had become his queen. Esther was present at this strategic moment, and God used her to alert Xerxes to what was really going on and expose Haman. Xerxes, Esther, and Haman were at a dinner party when she said this. She told the king of a person who was plotting to destroy both herself and her family. The king couldn't believe someone would try to kill his queen. Who is he? The king demanded. Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther pointed to the man sitting next to her saying, The adversary and the enemy is this vile Haman. Esther chapter 7 verses 5 and 6. Haman must have been struck with terror like a man turned to stone. He was exposed suddenly and there was no escape. The king was furious and that very day Haman was hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Poetic justice, yes. But even more important than that, sudden and certain justice. Just like that which will come upon all who despise God and reject His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our God. And notice in the text, He doesn't need arrows. He only needs one. It said arrow to destroy all of the mighty enemies. I wonder if that day when David faced Goliath, if we were David facing Goliath, we would have thought, boy, I've got five, I got five shots. God doesn't need five shots. God got him with the first one, and it was bullseye. I don't know about you, but this is a God that I can trust. This is a God that I can give my life to. Why? Because he is able to deliver. Here you have Haman building gallows to hang Mordecai, and the man is hanged on the very gallows that he built. Yes. <laughs> Justice is served. Psalm 64 and verse 10 in closing. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and let him take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart rejoice. Do we rejoice knowing that God is our great deliverer from our great enemies? Do you trust him? The, God, the justice of God 
is poetic justice. And the God of justice executes poetic justice. Suddenly they attack, but just as suddenly as they attack, they are destroyed. Notice all the verses given to the plots of the wicked, and God needs one and a half verses to dethrone them. That's the message of this psalm. The bulk of the body of the psalm is given over to describing the conspiracies of the wicked to destroy the righteous, and yet in an instant, God snuffs them out. Wow, who is like our God? Let's pray. Someone may pray this morning with me and say, Brother Joel, I want to know what it means to have the God of justice executing poetic justice on my great enemies that seek to attack me. Anyone at all? Yes, yes. Lord, we know and believe that just as suddenly and unexpectedly without warning that our enemies attack us, you are there to give retribution, to give vengeance, to give vindication. Lord, let us live our lives blameless. Help us, Lord, to be innocent, to be walking in the spirit, not in the flesh. Lord, help us to be what you've called us to be. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. Oh God, the God of justice is a God of poetic justice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.